Hey, yo, what's up? I'm Ice-T, and this is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of Law & Order SVU. If you have not watched episode 2114, I Deserve Some Loving Too, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello, welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2114, I Deserve Some Loving Too. And on the program, we welcome the legendary Ice-T. He sits down with the writer of this episode, Dennis Hamill, and we dig into the script, and we hear some very amusing Ice anecdotes. After that, SVU legal technical advisor Ann Milgram tells us how she keeps the law side of SVU in order. All of this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We're in the squad room with Ice-T and Dennis Hamill. We're talking about episode 14. I deserve some love in two, which happens to be Ice-T's 450th episode. Yeah. And that's why we're hanging out and talking. Yeah, that's deep. To say it doesn't seem like it is an understatement. It really doesn't seem like 450 episodes, but I guess it is. Somebody's it's, counting. Somebody's <laughs> counting, yeah. And Kelly is uh, It's also her 200th at the same time. Yeah, I was watching um, the Paley Center thing, and, then, and Kelly said she'd been here six years or seven years. It's, she still seems new to me, <laughs> you know? And I know Chris did 12 years, but it really does become a blur. And, you know, age and time is very strange. So uh, I'm just happy to still be here. And I, it's just amazing people still love the show. I was talking to Mariska about that Paley Center thing and just about people coming and going and how that impacts her. Mm -hmm. How does it impact you, all the change? Well, I just have a philosophy. Of course, I don't like seeing people leave. I look at it like being on a football team. When they come in, I'm like, okay, regardless to us losing a player, I still want to win. So it's not going to make matters better to be rude or mean to people. It's like, okay, Jamie, you're new. This is how the game is played. This is a marathon. This is not a sprint. A lot of new actors come on, and they're line hungry. They really want to act. I'm like, they're going to throw you a ton of work, but it's an ensemble cast, so it's going to be moved around. So don't get freaked out if right out the gate you don't have a ton of lines because the writers will give you an episode and drop you a chunk of work, like uh, the, the episode with Kelly where she got kidnapped. Well, now she got to do her acting chops, you know, and actors want to act. But I just kind of tell them, like, you know, keep your head down. This is a long run. And don't become difficult. When they do their tone meetings, you want to be the person that's saying, hey, we're having problems with Peter or we're having problems with Ice. You don't want to be that person. And you could be around here for 20 years. So I'm kind of like the lifer in the prison. You know, just like, okay, this is what the yard looks like. <laughs> this is how. I feel like I've been doing a 20-year bid here. You know what I'm saying? Morgan Freeman. Yeah, yeah I'm Morgan right, Freeman. Right. So I'm like, this is how you survive. In Shawshank, yeah. And if I went to another show, I'm sure there's another politics to that show that somebody could put me up on. So I think they appreciate somebody taking them to the side and saying, this is how this works. Nick Totoro was saying, he's been on a lot of shows, that he was saying there's an ease to this show that's unusual in the business. There's an ease to this show because they're not so stressed out. I've been on shows where, you know, they don't know if they're going to get picked up. 
and they're always trying to, to milk it or twist it a little bit, and they don't they don't know what they're doing to try to make it do better. Also, this show is full of experts. Everybody, from the writers, they're experts. The camera people, they're experts. The actors are experts. So all you got to do is worry about doing your job. When I say the line and they go check the gate, I walk away knowing that when it comes on television, it's going to be incredible. And another thing from an actor's perspective, what people may not understand, is in a scene, when we act, the first take might be the wide. That's part of my lines. The second take will be another shot of me. The third take will be a close-up. So what you're seeing is, I guess I'm giving it away for some actors, is the best of each one of those takes put together into a performance. So even if you had a like struggled with lines, by the time people see it, I'm watching it like, I'm acting my ass off. Like, because <laughs> the editors can pick the best takes of each angle and they put it together. Unless you're doing a, a one shot where it just stays on you for a long period of time. And then they'll do like five or six takes of that. But by the time they accumulate it, and a lot of times like, you'll start the scene off and you might get it and then maybe you fumble later, but the director say, I got that in the other take. So when you see us act, it's an accumulation of shots. So did I give away anything? We're not acting all that great. <laughs> you gave, you gave <laughs> away what you No saying. one else has said it. So well, they, they, they won't. They won't. They won't. <laughs> my impression when I came onto this show as my first year as a writer is that it was just an unbelievably well-oiled machine. And just keeps on moving and nobody gets flustered. I mean, everything has a snag in every walk of life, but... They work it out in a minute, depending on the location, the writers or director or the actors will all pitch in and try to, hey, how do we make this better? We were on the set of number 10 and Ice came over to me and said, don't you think that he would really say it this way? And he, he made so much sense, you know, that it just made the scene better. It just was a simple thing, but he, he didn't go out and do it. He came over and talked to me and it was just respectful and also better. And everybody gets along like that. And in between scenes, this guy keeps everybody <laughs> laughing and entertained. At Early in the show, the writers were in L.A. Right. So if there was a change that needed to be made, we had to call the coast. That's what they called it. So we, it would take time, and then you'd have to get the writer on the line. And some writers hold on to words like a dog with a bone. It's like a little word. But for me, when I'm reading a script or looking at a script, it's not real to me yet. You know, it's just words on a page. Once we start acting it out and it, it becomes real, then I might see it from another perspective. I try not to make notes. I try hard to stay very close. Now, the way Finn says things, he speaks in a slang. He has a little flavor. The writers already know, don't even try to write that. Ice is going to you know, flavor it up a little bit. But I have to stay on context because these shows are so complicated. If you change a then and now, or she used to, or she did, or it could change the whole meaning of the mystery. So sometimes they'll come in and they'll say, no, 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 it already happened and you just made it present. Little things that you might not know. And I try to respect the writers because, yo, they put the words in our mouth. So I'll talk to the writer and say, eh. This didn't make sense, though. Does it make sense right now? And sometimes I would rather talk to the writer and then say it out loud because maybe the writer did make a mistake. Like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. I thank you to say my ass. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so why, why throw him under the right, bus? say, right. yo. Another thing is we shoot out of context. So I'll say, did I already meet this guy yet? Or how do I know that? Yeah. That's in the show. 
But how does Finn know that? So you, little things like that. And they'll say, oh, you know it because such and such. Oh, okay, cool. And it helps you out. But you didn't film that yet, maybe. Maybe you yeah. didn't film that yet, or maybe it just is an off-screen thing that yeah. happened. But little things like that will change the way you'll say a line. So let's talk about this episode. The teaser is pretty incredible because of what's happening on the subways. Oh, the subways. High action, but kind of fun. And when you're writing that, what were you thinking? And why did it start that way? Well, believe it or not, so when you're writing some of these uh, New York scenes in winter months, you try to figure out how can I do this without having everybody freeze their ass off, you know, <laughs> and still make it big and action-filled in, in New York. And we decided to do a subway scene. It was actually Warren's idea to start it in the subway and uh, make it about gropers, which are a big problem. If you're a woman in New York, you know all about gropers if you ride the subway. And there is a special SVU unit that just patrols the subway. So we had our team coordinate with the subway team when they were looking for a particular groper. And it came out into a really terrific chase scene. And there's been stuff in the news in New York. And we pay attention to the news and what's because it's ripped from the headlines where people, common people are being locked up, people that sell dead cheer old ladies and, you know, people that are fed uh, beaters and stuff like that, where there's been a sense that there's been an overreaction by the police on certain crimes in the subway. And then other people who don't think that the subways are well enough policed because they just added 500 new cops to the subways because people are complaining about a rise of incidents in the subway. So we wanted to do something that was exciting and filled with action in the subway, which is so New York, and it was Canal Street, even. I mean, you know, to make it the subterranean town. And Jean de Sagenzac, who is the director, just did a fantastic job of just bringing that whole world in just fast, kind of William Freakin' French Connection kind of imagery, you know, the cinema verite look. And you can see Ice T in the middle of that, right square in the middle of a, of a brawl at the end when it comes on. It's really great, <laughs> really great. So, yeah, you get some heat from the people about the arrest you're making, right? Right. That you, and it that propels you us into yeah. a story that then takes a real sharp turn when the guy that we arrest tells them about another crime that's going on. Right. Well, nowadays, you know, of course, anybody's getting arrested, people are involved because, you know, they're looking out for police brutality. And thank God for that. Right. With so, their cell phones and all that, right? Yeah, they're watching, you know. So when you take somebody down, you know, the old days of nobody being able to talk about it, that's over. So I think police need to be policed. And I also think when cops know nobody's watching, they might tend to behave a little bit different, you know? Are so, you thinking about that as an actor when you're acting that scene, that these people are right in a way? Not really. I, I mean, as an actor, I just have to follow whatever the script says. So if the script says Finn is mad at the people, then I react like that. If Finn is not phased by the people, I react like that. As an actor, you follow the vibe of it. Sometimes you might question the vibe. Am I cool with them? Am I mad with them? But I think in this situation, we're taking a guy down. We know he's bad. The people don't know. He he just popped up. And now all of a sudden, we're, you know, looks like we're roughing yeah, him up. Yeah, I mean, he changes his jacket. He's at a magazine stand right. and you're so throwing him to the ground. But he's yeah. in the middle of it saying, the guy's a groper. Yeah, How would you like it if it's your mother exactly. or your sister? Right. Yeah. Because one I, of the women that gets that gets groped is an African-American woman yeah, and the yeah. other woman is another woman of color and the teaser. So, you know. I'm trying to bring the crowd down. Like, yes. this is who this is. It's yeah. not just somebody. He's really a bad person and, you know, take it easy because you don't want it to turn into a riot, which it kind of did. It turned yeah. into a real skirmish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And that kind of stuff is going on in the city. And I think people will relate to that because then it really is a great way to then propel us into the story. After the teaser, the guy that they do nab opens up a whole new uh, sure. case for us. His ass is on the line, so he's going to fire somebody else's. In law and order fashion. Yeah. Right. So that takes you, um, taking Dwayne down, obviously gets you into the room with O'Toole, and then you figure out that this whole thing is happening. I just wanted to talk to you about that kind of journey that you were going on with that story. Well, it was a story that, as a journalist, I'm surprised at myself that I didn't cover personally. I must have been on vacation because it would have been a case that I would have jumped on in a minute. It was about an adjudicator for green cards at the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. And he's the guy that actually determines whether or not somebody is going to get a green card and whether the marriage that they're in is for real. There was a, a case that I got my hands on when I was doing research, and I said, this is a problem. There's people that are actually exploiting women for sex in order for green cards. And I thought, that's a perfect episode for us because of all the things that are going on in the country with immigration at the border, but also in this city of immigrants called New York. People come here like it's, you know, Oz, and they don't want to leave my parents were immigrants, so I kind of know what the exploitation of immigrants feels like from stories that my parents told me. And when I saw these stories that I read about these guys exploiting women for sex in order to stay in the country to get their green card, I thought it would make compelling human drama because most of them were doing it to save their own marriages and had to lie to their husbands that this was going on, but they were trying to hold together families and a life in America. And it was just a terrible abuse of power. And I think one of the things that what ICE was talking about, what's great about this particular show is that this is this bunch of cops that really go after people who are the worst kinds of criminals, the ones that abuse power all the time, because rape is about power. And pedophilia is about power. And this guy was the ultimate abuser of power, as far as I could tell, because he was using the bald eagle and the American flag to get himself sex from these exploited women of every walk of life. There's an Irish woman, there's a, an Hispanic woman and an Asian woman that we use in our story. And I think it's made for a pretty compelling and really powerful and touching kind of uh, episode. I'm really happy with it, I have to say. Yeah, it came out great. Then Rollins goes undercover with Hasim. Going undercover, what do you think about like when that pops up? Look what Kelly did with this particular episode. She decided to play the undercover character as a kind of flighty blonde, you yeah. know, who was a bartender. And she, her performance reminded me of Judy Holliday in um, Born Yesterday. She didn't even know who Judy Holliday was. <laughs> She's a really good actress, and she gets to play another role. inside. It's like a play within a play. It's like Hamlet, you know, there's a play within the play. And so for an actor, that's a dream to go undercover, right? Yeah, the, yeah at the end of the day, we're not cops, we're actors. Actors want challenges to show themselves in a different light. So anytime you can show yourself in another way, it's fun. You know, being a musician, you do all types of different songs. So when as a musician, you create all these different roles and these different characters and these different places. You go, on this, you kind of follow in a direction. Right. So you can only go where they steer you. People walk up to me, yo, Ice, you should have did this. You should have said that. I'm like, I can't just say what I want to say. They're putting these words in my mouth. Although they write so well, you believe I'm really talking. And I think that's when a writer understands each character's voice. They say, okay, this is how Finn would respond to right. it, and this is how Rollins would. We don't share voices. Everyone talks in a different lingo. 
authenticity is a key to both of your careers. I mean, you've always tried to stay true to who you were and you spent your whole life as a journalist kind of finding the truth, right? Yeah, I think it's the way we probably both grew up. I grew up in a tenement in Brooklyn and then in a housing project in Staten Island and went to public schools. And when I wrote a column for the Daily News, I covered the people in area code 718 that I knew in Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island and the Bronx and the down and dirty of the city, because that's the city of New York, is the people. So the transition to this show, which is about New York and all the things that happen in the netherworld, in the crime world, was a natural transition for me. That's why I was telling you earlier that when I was writing a column for the Daily News and I saw that it was this guy named Ice-T. Yeah, he wrote on me before. <laughs> who just got hired by Law & Order, the guy who had Cop Killer on the charts. And he got hired to play a cop. I said, I have to go right interview this guy. And, and we did. We sat in a pizzeria on the east side in between takes. I think it was your first episode. Might have Might been. been. And he said, what do you think of my new girlfriend? And it was Coco. She was at the counter. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I don't remember last night. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm, I'm, this man wouldn't lie. I, mean, I, I, I do remember the interview. Once I met him this time, and I'm like, you're very familiar. Yeah. You know? He's like, yeah, yeah, I interviewed you back in the day. Of course, it was 20-something years ago. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But... I think authenticity is something Dick Wolf really loves. I mean, you know, he loves true crime. He loves it. The closer he can cast to the truth is very important. And when I met him, he vibed off of my honesty and my authenticity. And then I was getting into acting. I had done a ton of movies, but I was still getting my skill together. Now I've been on the show 20 years, so I've been able to work with some of the greatest actors from Jerry Lewis, Carol Burnett, all these different people. So I never forget when I was doing one of my early movies called Surviving the Game, I was with F. Murray Abraham, and he had just won the Academy Award for Amadeus. He says, have you ever taken an acting lesson? I said, no. He said, don't. It'll fuck you up. You got a great mechanism. He says, listen, those who can't do teach, never take acting lessons. He said, you're a working actor. Learn from the other actors that you work with. He says, you're going to pick up something from me. You're going to pick up something from, pick up all the stuff. That, and so now, I, from him giving me that game, every time I work with somebody, I'm picking up their little flavor, like some of the little tricks, or I'm asking them questions. So now 20-something years doing it every day. I think I got the shit. That's some, ma- <laughs> that's some master class. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I look at it like, yo, you know, I got to work. And, you know, also when you first start acting, you might be nervous. They put you up against a Morgan Freeman. They put you up against somebody, a heavy actor, you know, Harvey Keitel. Now I have no fear. It's like that little nervousness of, oh, they're a super actor and you're new. You got to get over that. So that you know you can go toe to toe with them if that what the uh, scene calls for. When you were on here last time, you were joking around. You're like, I don't even know where I live. I don't know if I have Not a car. Um, do you want to know? Do you want no, these I guys want, to? I just want to stay employed. On. I, I don't care. <laughs> I, I, all I care about is this thing gets shot. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I've been shot a couple times on the show. Soon as I get shot, I turn the page real quick to make sure I'm still breathing or something <laughs> like that. But Dick Wolf said that this show isn't about our lives. It's about the stories. And he doesn't really go into the backstories. Like when Rich and Noah and all that kind of stuff. But I don't really need Finn and all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't care what car Finn drives. I care what car Ice drives home from the set. <laughs> <laughs> 
Perfectly put. <laughs> well, Ice-T, thank you. I know you got to go. And okay. Thanks for coming on the squad. Room. All right. It's a pleasure you. talking all to right. you. All right. All right. Peace. See you later. All right, my brother. Out. So, Dennis, just coming back to uh, I Deserve Some Loving, too. What was the reason to bring Buchanan back? I mean, O'Toole is so slimy. Did you just feel like he's another perfectly well, yeah, we slimy needed, companion? For- we needed a really tough attorney because no case is really a slam dunk. And in a courtroom, anything can happen. I've covered a lot of trials in my life, and it's always a turn of event. A good attorney can change events in a minute. He, he does almost. Because it's, it is theater. Yeah. I mean, playing for an audience of 12 and a really good lawyer only needs one to get a mistrial. Because a lot of times DAs won't reindict if they don't. Right. We even use that line and he says, you need 12, I only need one. Yeah. And he turns the tables on our cops, which makes it interesting. You want the story to have some turns and some reverses. That they're saying that this guy was playing a game. You two were undercover. His job is to find out what fake marriages are. Yeah. This was a fake marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so... And he, he's got a mattress in the back for that reason. He's an investigator just like you two. Right. And they weren't expecting that kind of a defense, so, you know, to be as powerful he as He catches Rollins, definitely, on yeah. the set. Yeah. Yeah. And she shop his attack, and she realizes that. So they need some real... You want to ratchet it up where we actually have to get some of the... That the, the undercover cops are not enough. We still need to get some of the real victims to come in. So that's the hurdle that our cops have. You want to put up more obstacles for our people to ratchet up the drama. And I think that we accomplished that in this episode. Is there a concerted effort to get in the courtroom more? Because it feels like you've been there a little bit Uh, more lately. Yeah, those are decisions that are really not made by the writers. They're really made by Warren and Julie. But I think because Carisi, who is such a, a beloved character to our audience, making him the ADA... We want to utilize him. We want to see him evolve and develop as a character, as an attorney. But now that he is an ADA and he's part of our team, it's not going to just be him uh, talking in squad rooms. We do, you know, it is called law and order. So we want to have some stuff in the court. And I think courtroom dramas are powerful. I'm enjoying it. There was another scene that struck me was that when you go to the house with Eddie Klein, you have Hasim do that conversation. And I thought that was interesting that you have not one of your... (laughs) main cast members and just talk about that but scene. But he was what- part of the team in this one. I had the same question w- w- with Warren. I said, can we break point of view and go with uh, with this guest? He's an SVU cop that's working in coordination with our SVU team. So he, in that scene, he is Rollins' partner. So Warren thought that it was not a stretch to let him have a point of view. Powerful scene, I think. It's a brilliant scene. Is that an indication that we might see more of him? I think the performance is Very so good. good. Yeah, and obviously, what happens at the end yeah, between him and Rollins yeah, might where indicate they have a little touch. It's kind of a little smoke signal that there's more stuff on the horizon. But I don't know the answer to that. While we're on the subject of them, when they're undercover, he shoots that. And is it a comical? Uh, what do you think the way he approaches that scene when Carisi's interviewing them? Oh well, he's being playful because yeah. well, first of all, they're rehearsing for a role for role playing. Yeah. And Carisi's always had a thing for Rollins. And it's an unspoken thing, but you could see him. And they even hug at the end in the elevator at at the end of uh, episode 10 after she's been kidnapped, the one that was uh, on. So when he sits down and watches these two playing man and wife, 
and they're getting a little touchy-feely and tactile. He just does it with a look. It's He's uncomfortable with it. And I think that's all we need for... But, I mean, outside of the love triangle, it also just has a little bit of a... Yeah, um, it's well, more playful Johnny, than Johnny D., the director, thought that this is playful and let's have fun with this because our audience loves that whole aspect of it, the subtext of the Rolisi thing. They really like it. But the teaser's a little fun, too, right? Yeah, it oh, struck yeah. me about this episode that there was, like, a couple moments of actually playfulness, yes. uh, which is unusual for this show. Yeah, it isn't just one note. I mean, Jean de Zagonzakis brings a lot of layers to an episode. And this one, he really liked the script. And he had gone through the green card thing himself. So he understood what it meant because he's an immigrant. And yeah. So it was interesting for him to do this episode. I thought it was really nice to see Jean and yourself play a few different notes. Yeah. I mean, yeah it's just... And I think that really comes from Warren, too. Because a lot of that stuff starts at the tone meetings. And Warren will say, you know, why don't we have, you know, and why don't we make this playful a little yeah. bit and lighten it up a little bit because then it's going to get really intense and some of it's going to be really hot tug. Nice to get know? a little break, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that good drama needs that. Yeah. It's not comic relief, really, but it's no. humor relief. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, because it's not going for a cheap joke, but it's kind of light. Light, right, right. Yeah, it's not laugh out loud funny. Right. But. And the guy's a pianist, you know, in it, so they're hitting different notes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dennis Hamill, thank you so much for coming on. It's a wonderful episode. And, thank you. And uh, we'll see you again, I'm sure. I hope so. Thanks. Ann Milgram has been the legal technical advisor for SVU for many years now. I sat down with Ann to get a sense of how she interacts with the SVU writers and guides them through their process. I am on the squad room with Ann Milgram. Hi. And thank you for coming on. Just starting out, if you could explain what you do for Law & Order SVU and what your background is. Sure. I am the legal technical advisor. And so I spend a lot of time talking to the writers about the scripts and what would actually happen. What would the prosecutors do? What would the defense lawyers do? What would the judge do? And so anything that really touches the criminal prosecution, the trial, a grand jury, I'll spend time up front talking to the writers about how would it go. Sometimes they'll just come to me with a story idea and say, you know, would this be legal? Could this be prosecuted in New York? That kind of thing. And then, of course, I read all the scripts, make comments on dialogue, or I'll say, this isn't actually the right crime. It should be charged as this, or I'll help them figure out. And the writers, I mean, I should say this up front, are extraordinary. They're really well-prepared. They know a lot about the law. And then I'll just help them figure out, okay, if someone was convicted on these crimes, what would the sentence look like? What are the options? And how would a prosecutor or a defender or a judge think about it. My background as a criminal prosecutor, I went to law school at NYU. I clerked for a federal judge in New Jersey, and then I joined as an assistant DA in the Manhattan DA's office, where I prosecuted all types of crime. I was a member of the domestic violence unit, a member of the sex crimes unit. And so I did those types of cases in addition to all the other types of cases that I prosecuted. But I've been doing this, I think, since I was trying to remember if it was 2011 or 2012 that I first met Warren. I believe it was season 13. Season right? 13. So that was Warren's yeah. first year. So how did you come to Warren's attention? 
Warren had just come from in treatment and he had had a psychologist or psychiatrist who'd consulted with him on that show. So what he wanted to do when he first came to Law & Order was to bring in a bunch of folks that were knowledgeable about criminal prosecutions. And so I think he had a group of folks different days come in for lunches and just sort of sit and talk to the writers. And I came in, had a great experience and you know spent a lot of time talking to Warren after and then about a week later, I got a call saying, would you review our scripts and sort of be the person who would consult and work with us? How demanding of your time is the Law & Order SVU part of your career? It varies a lot. And so generally when the show is in production, I'll generally read a new episode. And then I read all the subsequent drafts of the episodes as they come out. I often won't give notes if I've already raised an issue. I'll sort of assume that the writers know how I think it would be done. And one of the most important things too, which I should say up front, is that drama, of course, always comes first. And Warren and Julie, they're really amazing at being as legally accurate as possible. And so I will give them, you know, here are three ways it could happen. This would be the most likely, this would be the least likely. But, you know, in any given week, I could spend anywhere from probably three to five hours, depending. And then there are weeks where I spend a lot of time on the phone with the writers. And one thing that Warren and the team have been great about is they'll call me up front and say, we just want to spend a half an hour on the phone and brainstorm this with you. And it really does make it a lot easier as the episode goes on because the writers will already have in their mind, okay, this is how we want it to play out or here are the crimes we want to charge. And so it becomes easier for them, I think, as well. Are there situations where what you think would really happen and what happens on the show are different things? Not often. I mean, I think overwhelmingly the answer is no. There have been a couple of times where, <laughs> you know, we have this conversation where here's how the law would work, here's what would happen, and the drama really requires it to be massaged or to be done differently. And sometimes we've come to a point where, okay, it wouldn't happen if we charge this crime, let's charge that crime, or here's another way we can do it. So a lot of times we'll try to come up with a solution that doesn't put us in the situation. Um, and in part, I feel strongly about it because, you know, a lot of Americans learn about the law from law and order. And so, yeah. and it, Warren is, and people should know this, like Warren and Julie and the whole team, they're really very, very committed to being as accurate as possible and they do a great job. So it's really very rare that we've come to a point where drama has to win. And of course it, it wins. Do you see other programs or movies that you're just like, this is so unbelievably wrong? How I did do, they get away with I do. This? And sometimes I yell at the TV. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask my husband, there are times where he'd be like, I cannot watch the show with you. Right. Here's the amazing part about that. Like there's so much drama already in criminal justice and courtrooms. And, you know, sometimes I see shows just take real shortcuts that are not accurate and actually misrepresent what a defendant's rights are or what a prosecutor could or would do in a really significant way. And it's often, I think, more dramatic if they'd even just done it correctly. Like there's so much drama right. in real life and in these spaces that I often watch it and think, I don't even, I don't no, even know why you it? have, yeah. like why you don't spend the time to do it, but. Because, well, maybe because they don't have the time, right? right? I think that's a, that's an issue. One of the things that happened this season was that, well, two things that happened is that Olivia Benson was made captain. Yeah. And do you feel that her movie up in the ranks has been accurately portrayed in, in the show. And when you see her on screen or in the script, does it seem like she's doing what you think she should be doing? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I think a very short answer is that it would depend on the police department and the size of the police department. NYPD is huge. She's in SVU. So she continues to lead this team and they've made a decision that the captain will lead the team. That's a common thing to have happen that you would promote somebody internally and they would then stay in charge of that unit. So yes, in a big police department, the short answer is yes. In a small police department, a lot of times a captain would go be a shift commander and basically sort of oversee, okay, we've got 12 hours of officers on the street, who's deployed, where are they deployed? Like they become more administrative in some departments as they get more senior because essentially, you know, police departments don't have chief operating officers. And so it's like who determines where the officers go, what they focus on. But NYPD is, you know, thousands. I mean, it's a city unto itself of officers and folks that work with them. So yes, it's completely realistic that Benson would rise in the ranks. The other thing that's realistic that I think they've done a great job at is showing police departments are pretty hierarchical and there's a lot of respect shown to Benson as a captain, yeah. right? And and it's yeah. it comes through in the episodes that she's the captain and people say congratulations, but people also, you know, it's a higher level of respect that she sort of gets from other officers, particularly those outside of her unit. So 100%, I think they've done a great job. But in a way, she's, I guess, doing less active work. Is that correct? You're Completely s- correct. And I mean, that's honest to what's yes. ha- what would be happening. I would say sort of tough part about being more senior and promoted as either a police officer or a prosecutor even is when I was AG, I never tried a case. And I tried a lot of cases in my career. It was my favorite thing to do was to work with victims, be in the courtroom. And the more senior you get, you run the office and you run the cases. And so the way it's portrayed is exactly right, which is that she would have her finger in every case. She would be briefed on the high level. She might listen to some of the interviews. She might get involved in some things, but she's not on the street doing the interviews herself often. And that's the reality of promotions. we we, we miss her on the street. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I bet she misses it, right? I mean, this is the truth of my, you know, my career. I was promoted when I was fairly young and I remember being like, I want to still try cases and you can't oversee and help other people do a great job with their cases if you're doing your own. It's really all consuming when you investigate or prosecute a case yourself. I think it's been a real challenge for Warren with Olivia Benson. And the other thing I was going to ask you about was Carisi's moving to the ADA. To, I love Carisi as the ADA. Yeah, it's great. We'll t- we're going to talk on that in a second. But I think doing honest things with these characters that feel believable, but then also being able to include them in the show in the way that we're used to seeing them, I think is a big challenge for the writers right now. Yeah, so. I agree. I mean, I have had this conversation with the writers a couple times. When you're an assistant DA, you don't go out on warrants usually because if you go out on a search warrant, you make yourself a witness. And so you can, there's nothing legally to stop you. And as a rule, the warrants go fine and there's not an issue with it. But if someone litigates, the defense property is seized, a defense lawyer comes in and says that warrant was illegal. There was property that was seized that wasn't accounted for in the warrant. Then the prosecutor who's there at the scene could become a witness and then they can't prosecute the case. And so this is an example where, yes, in America, some prosecutors go out to warrants. Most don't because it's better not to be in that position. But these are the kind of things we've gone back and forth on is like, 
okay, he can go, but what's his role and how would you think about that? So can you give me an example of the season where Carisi in his new position where you were like, he can't do that? Yeah, there was one episode and I can't remember the number where he could do it, but he normally wouldn't. They were going up to interview a witness upstate and I think it was Rollins and Carisi went up to do the interview. And as a rule, the police do the first interview. And so it would have been Rollins and Kat would have gone up to do that first interview. Then they would have come back and briefed Carisi. Was it at the country club? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it was was, uh, Carisi and Kat. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so that's an example where, yes, he could do it. And I think he went because she's new. She's new. Yeah. You could totally see this happening. It's not unlawful for him to do it, but the reality of an assistant DA is that you know, you wake up in the morning, you might be working the complaint room for 12 hours. You might be standing up on your cases in court. You might be trying a case. You might be going to the grand jury. So the only times I left the office when I was an assistant DA or at the Department of Justice was when I was going to a crime scene before trial or I was going to a crime scene because I wanted to investigate and understand it. But in terms of witnesses, the witnesses come to the DA's office and often always the police get the first shot. So obviously that role would not be very exciting in our television show. Right? <laughs> what, paperwork is not yeah, exciting? I, I mean, um, So did Warren and Julie come to you when they were thinking about making this move and saying, is this something that could work or did they make the move and then you advised? Yeah, so they told me, I don't remember when they told me that Carisi was going to be the new ADA. But it was decided. It was before. decided. Okay. And I love the idea of it. And one of the important things and one of the hard things about being a prosecutor is learning how to investigate a case. And SVU is a little bit unique because the officers do such in-depth investigations. But the benefit for Carisi in general is there are plenty of cases where police officers make an arrest, they have enough, they believe there's probable cause to charge someone with a crime, and they drop it on your desk. Then the prosecutor has to get phone records, has to find the witnesses, has to ask the witnesses to come in. As cases get more serious, the police officers help you with that. But You know, at the misdemeanor and low felony level, the ADA, the assistant district attorney, does almost all of it themselves often. And so Carisi's ability as an investigator to really be able to like interview witnesses, to know how to gather evidence, I think is invaluable for him and puts him in a really unique situation to see both sides. So something we see on the show sometimes is a detective lying to a witness to get a confession. Can you really do that? Can you say, oh, your daughter came out of the coma and she told us everything, even if she didn't? Yeah, this is a great question and it's a conversation we have <laughs> we have a lot, which is that the police can lie to witnesses. So the police could walk in and say, Anthony, we have your DNA on the doorknob. We know you were in that house and you just told the police, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't involved in a burglary. And then they say, we've got your DNA. We know you were there. And you don't know whether or not that's true. That oftentimes will induce a confession, right? Like, yeah, okay, I was there. Or it could be a, no, somebody took my DNA and put it there. But the police can do that. The DAs cannot. So Carisi now as an, as the assistant DA cannot say to the mom, your daughter woke up and now we know this. So exactly. So, and I actually even think this is debated. Assistant DAs differ on this, but there's a certain amount of police officers do what they do to, to get information from witnesses and they investigate, but there are lines that you can see cross sometimes and juries sometimes do not like when officers will get a confession based on something where the officer has lied, has gone too far in a lie. But it happens routinely, particularly around like DNA, we found your fingerprints at the scene and that kind of stuff. But again, never the prosecutors. But you've seen it backfire. I've seen it backfire, not a lot, but a couple of times where the lies were so 
like, you're guilty. Here are the three pieces of evidence we have to prove your guilt. You're going to go to prison for the next 30 years if you don't tell us X, Y, Z. You know, that makes, I think, most people very uncomfortable, particularly, and and remember, you know, with a lot of the false confession cases, there were lies that were told to people who ultimately falsely confessed. And I think juries have a very strong sense of fairness. And if it feels unfair, it's not just a small, you know, Cat or Rollins or Finn going out and saying like, yeah, somebody saw you there to try to see if they can like spark a further conversation. It's a, we have your DNA. We have three witnesses that say this. And that's where you start to worry. And I think juries start to worry sometimes. I was wondering if you helped Dennis out with this episode. I deserve some loving too, because I know he's been working on it for quite a while. Yeah, I think he did a great job on it. And actually, at the end, we'd gone back and forth on a couple of questions of, you know, would the feds take the case or would the locals prosecute it? And Dennis sent me a great link to an article where I think there was a, not exactly the same, but there was a case prosecuted in Queens. Um, And so he did a terrific job of really getting at both the official corruption angle of this and just the vast power that O'Toole, Rory O'Toole has as somebody who's deciding and it's pretty subjective in, yeah. in many ways. Is it a legitimate marriage. is it a legitimate marriage or not? And then also just this insight into picking the most vulnerable victims and how this happens with predators. And so I think it's a great a great episode. His defense that he was saying when Rollins goes undercover and he's like, oh, I was testing to see if she would be faithful. Right. This is a classic type of defense where at first blush, it makes sense. So yeah. this is my job. My job is to figure out whether or not this is legitimate. Right. Here's this is this is one of the ways I used to do it. What defies that is that he's meeting them outside of work. He's meeting them at night. He's got them in his van. He has a mattress. He's in got the a mattress back. exactly, which probably has a lot of DNA on it, <laughs> right. right? So like, you know, this is this is a conversation we had also. I think I had it with um maybe Julie and Dennis. I'd prosecuted a case of a law enforcement officer who had accusations for sexual assault and one of the parts of this case was the law enforcement officer said you know, I never, ever, and he had been driving his um, SUV and said, I never, ever had any sexual relations with this woman. And we said, did you ever have sexual relations in your SUV? And the answer was absolutely not. Will we find your DNA? Absolutely no. This was a federal case. We took all the seats out of the SUV and found the DNA. And it, it led to ultimately a guilty plea in a case. And so this was a really interesting part of that case is just how would you defend it And I think the writers do a great job thinking about what the best defenses are and how would somebody really structure it. And it's a great way to think about that type of case. Is there anything that you've done in your career that you wish they would maybe visit or touch on or something? Is there anything you've experienced as a professional? Yeah. I mean, like, oh, that would be. One of the things I've loved seeing is they've done so much in human trafficking. And I've spent a lot of my career working in human trafficking and also domestic violence and sex crime. So I feel like they're excellent at really tapping into that. And, you know, there's no shortage. (laughs) Um, I've I've done a lot of international work. I think it's hard for a TV show to do some of the international, um, for example, like a trafficking cartel. I spent time in Mexico and Jamaica on trafficking cases, but it would be tough to do here. But I really like, I think they've done a fantastic job of really going into those issues and doing it really accurately. So everything's, in a sense, been covered, you think? Well, there's always more to cover. (laughs) (laughs) And, And just when we think, you know, I will tell you the funny thing is the first season I was on, 
I remember saying at one point, like, this would never happen in New York, like a court scene or someone being arrested for doing something very minor. And then one of the writers sent me an article from, it wasn't from New York, it was from another state, but basically with the exact thing happening, I was like, you really can't make it up. Like even me, who's been, you know, working in the criminal justice system in so many different roles for years, had never seen that. So there's plenty to cover. Yeah. Well, Ann Milgram, thank you so much for coming on the squad room. Great. Thank you. That's a wrap for the squad room. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a thing. As always, we love hearing from you. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf. And the squad room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdale and Jessica Damari. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto. And we would like to extend a huge thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help. As always, The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>